0: And today we are continuing in our study of the Beatitudes from our Lord's famous Sermon on the Mount. And so please, if you will, I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Our focus today will just be on one verse, Matthew 5 verse 3. We spent the last few weeks giving you an introduction to the Beatitudes. Now it's time to tackle them one by one. Uh, but please do remember what we've seen the last few weeks that this is the gospel of the kingdom. That this is the inbreaking of the new creation that Jesus is talking about. These Beatitudes are the work of the Spirit, they're not produced by man, they're not natural to this world. It is new creation realities entering into this age. Remember as well that our creator is revealing to us the virtue, excuse me, the virtues of the spiritually favored, the spiritually happy, the flourishing, blessed life. Our Lord telling us where true happiness and fulfillment is found in these Beatitudes. So let's keep these in mind as we focus on verse three. But to set the context, let's read verses 1 through 3. Remember, brethren, this is God's word. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Pray with me again. Our God and Father, we bless you and we say that, our, that your word is our delight and that your favor and blessing is our greatest joy. It is the greatest longing of our hearts. So we pray that you would fill us with the spirit of truth this morning. We pray that you would lead us in the path of your commandments We pray that You would grant to us the blessing that Christ speaks of here as we listen with faith, as we listen expecting and waiting for You to speak to our hearts and to conform us to Your image, the image of Christ, Your Son, in whose name that we pray. Amen. Well, every single week as I... Prepare in my study for Sunday's sermon, I always spend a great deal of time carefully crafting an introduction to the passage and topic at hand. Uh, maybe I do that every week except this week, right? <laughs> so I'm speaking of an introduction. Uh, an introduction to a sermon or any public speech is absolutely critical to getting the point across. The introduction serves to get the attention of the listener, to draw them in and to show them why this speaker or why this topic is important and worthy of your attention. An introduction as well serves as the foundation for everything else that will be said. Whatever else is said in the speech, whatever else is said in the sermon, it's all going to be viewed through the lens and in relation to the introduction. A poor or faulty introduction can easily derail an entire sermon, even if the rest of the content is excellent. Well, I mention this because I believe it helps us understand what Jesus, uh, the Prince of Preachers, is doing here in verse 3. Remember, as we've seen, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first and most comprehensive sermon on the gospel of the kingdom of God. Remember as well that the Beatitudes themselves are an introduction to this greater sermon on the gospel of the kingdom. But even more than this, what I want you to see is that this first Beatitude in many ways is an introduction as well. It's an introduction to the other Beatitudes that he lists here, following it. There's eight total Beatitudes here, but you need to know they're not just listed randomly. Uh, There's an intentional order and structure to them. And it's clear that the first one in the first one contains the sum and substance of every Beatitude to follow. It might be said that blessed are the poor in spirit is the first letter in the Christian alphabet. It might be said actually it is the letter by which every single word in the Christian life is formed. It might be said that blessed are the poor in spirit is the lifeblood of the Christian body. It permeates and flows through every bit of who we are. In what we do. No one is a Christian who is not poor in spirit. Everyone who is a Christian is not only poor in spirit, but they also live and grow and mature through the greater and greater cultivation of this virtue of being poor in spirit. Brother, I want you to see that blessed are the poor in spirit, is in many respects. The gateway into all the other blessings of the Christian life. Just think about this in relation to the other Beatitudes. No one ever mourns before God if they are not poor in spirit. No one is meek if they are not poor in spirit. No one hungers and thirsts after righteousness if they are not going uh, to see themselves as poor and lacking those things themselves. No one is merciful if they don't see their own poverty in need of mercy. And so on and so on. The rest of the Beatitudes, the rest of the Christian life falls apart without this virtue of being poor in spirit. And this, brethren, is what I want you to see today. Jesus begins here for a very particular reason. He begins here because you can't understand the gospel of the kingdom without understanding poor in spirit. You can't understand the Sermon on the Mount without understanding poor in spirit. You can't understand the Beatitudes themselves unless you understand the introduction. What it means to be poor in spirit. For being poor in spirit is the first step on the road to the kingdom of heaven. And Why is that? Because to be clothed with his righteousness, we must first realize our nakedness. And to be filled with his power and might and grace and strength, we must first realize, be shown and understand our weakness and our poverty of resources ourselves. That's what we see today. And that's why Jesus begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. I want to focus in on three aspects today. Three aspects of being poor in spirit. And the first thing I want us to consider is, for lack of a better way of putting it, we are beggars regarding our salvation. We are beggars regarding our salvation. A few weeks ago, we considered just how amazing it is that the first word of Jesus' first sermon is the word blessed right remember he was uh, ascended the mountain and um, it recalls uh, Moses receiving the law so we're expecting divine revelation here we're expecting this this, this replay of Moses on the mountain and bringing the law and the righteousness of God, and it fills us with that expectation. But instead of cursings, instead of commandments, instead of do this, the first word out of Jesus' mouth is blessed. Good news, favor, goodness, joy, blessed, happiness. The first words on the mouth, on the lips of our Savior. Accordingly, then, I want you to see that it's just, it's amazing that this idea of blessed are the poor in spirit actually picks up right where the law leaves us off. The law was given to reveal and expose and correct and demand and condemn and to judge and to show us where we have failed. And if it rightly does that work in us, it breaks us down. It brings us low before God. It pummels us with a standard that's impossible to meet. And we look around and think, I am in huge trouble. But this then picks up right where the law left off. This is where the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ begins. The one who is condemned by the law knows and feels that just condemnation. And thus they are, in many respects, described as being poor in spirit. The gospel of the kingdom here, think about it, begins not with the presence of obedience, not with positively something that you have, a righteousness or a merit or a goodness or a power or a strength or a might or a will. Rather, the gospel of the kingdom begins with an absence, a deficiency, a poverty, not with what we have, not with even what we need to have, but what we we don't have and with what we can't obtain on our own. That's the idea of being poor in spirit. The gospel begins with a lack, not with a sufficiency. we think about the word poor here, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you probably know that all throughout the Psalms, throughout the prophets, uh, like Isaiah, for example, there's particular attention given to the poor. Psalm 918, the hope of the poor will not perish forever. Psalm 3510, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor? Psalm 72, 4, may the Lord defend the cause of the poor. Isaiah uh, eleven, four: 4, speaking of the Messiah, he will come and judge the poor with righteousness. That means he'll give them justice. Psalm, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 25, 4, the Lord is a stronghold to the poor. And so on and so on. The poor in the Old Testament are particularly spoken of as being targeted by the wicked, as being weak and helpless in and of themselves, as being needy and taken captive and taken advantage of. But, but we need to know, and this is sadly often confused in our day, the Old Testament idea of poor isn't really about those who are materially poor. Those who have no jobs or incomes or homes or possessions. Uh, That's certainly part of it or is often part of it. Um, But when the scriptures speak of the poor, it most specifically refers to those who don't have power or support or resources of their own, no matter what context that might fall in. And so the poor, the the Lord is a refuge and a stronghold to the poor because the poor can't rely upon things of this world, so they look and they cry out to God alone. He is my protection. He is my provision. He is my deliverance. So even a materially rich man can fall under the Old Testament idea of the poor. Which is why it's not just as simple as saying, well, the scriptures give so much attention to the poor. Now we must go out into the streets and pay attention to the poor. That's the calling of the church. Certainly we are called to help the poor. But there's more to the idea than just materialism. Even a rich man can fall under the description of poor in scripture. Because the poor are those who recognize their powerless, powerlessness. And they look to the Lord alone for strength and deliverance. And that's what's behind Jesus' words here. It's this broad statement an absence of strength, an absence of help, an absence of resources, whatever that may be. Most specifically, if we were to break down this Greek word for poor, it literally can be translated as those who beg. First, to those who beg. Recall the, uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. Remember, uh, Lazarus was a poor man. And he's described as poor, the poor who sat at the rich man's gate every day to beg. So this is a beggar. A poor is one who begs. So what does it mean then to be poor in spirit? It means to be a beggar, spiritually speaking. It means to be a beggar of the Lord. Before the Lord. It refers to a spiritual state. The state of the heart. The disposition and and our inclination before God. It speaks of not the outer man, but but the inner man. It doesn't speak of the, the posture of the body, but the posture of the heart. It doesn't speak of 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 externals like Roman Catholicism translates this and well that means we need to take a vow of poverty or others who think being poor in spirit means that you're low and humble in posture in the sense of ritual or spiritual disciplines no it speaks of a broken and contrite heart and so think about just the radical nature of the Lord's words here The law of Moses primarily dealt with things external and earthly and outward and ritual. But Christ begins at the heart. He begins with the spirit. He begins with the character of the heart and the one who is beloved by God being poor in spirit. So, poor in spirit doesn't mean um, financially poor. It's also worth noting that it doesn't refer to someone who's depressed or downcast or lowly. I think maybe because of what's often thought or said in our day, neither does it refer to someone who has low self-esteem or someone who has a poor self-image or those who are unsure of themselves or those who lack courage or, or those who think that their life or their gifts are nothing of value. That's not what it's getting at. being poor in spirit is the recognition that God is great and we are not that God is holy and we are sinful that that sin and Satan and the world are powerful and we are weak that God's righteous standard is perfect and that we despite all of our uh, best efforts are utterly unable to meet it It's a recognition that, like the parable of Matthew 18, we owe our God 10,000 talents of debt, and yet we don't even have one penny to repay. A disposition of heart where we recognize that our poverty is so deep that all we can do is beg. We can't pay. We can't work. We can't scheme. We can't recruit others to help us. We can't rely upon others to save us. All we can do is beg before the mercy of God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. An absolute, complete absence of self-reliance in every respect. Depending upon and waiting upon the mercy of our God. Now the point at hand, of course, is that I want to think about this in relation to how we are beggars in regards to our salvation. So think then, as as we understand what it means to be a spiritual beggar, in relation to our salvation, what does this mean? Well, the gospel starts, of course, with the fact that although we are Created in God's image. We are commanded to live our lives in a way that reflect His glory and and beautify His name. We've all turned and lived our own way. We all live at times emphatically and times more than others, but we all live according to our own standards, our own preferences, and our own desires. We're all sinners. We do and we think And we desire evil things that defame God's name and hurt others. And not only have we broken God's commandments by our lying and our lusting and our covetousness and our hate and our wicked tongue and our wicked thoughts, but we've also positively failed to obey, to do justice and righteousness and to love our neighbor. And so we have this twofold debt. We have our sins that must be punished. And we have obedience that we fail to render. that, That must be performed. So to be poor in spirit is to recognize this. I have a debt that I can't pay. I have an obedience that I can't perform. And I am destitute of any strength or help or resources on my own. All I can do is beg God for mercy. Some of you may have heard my personal testimony before, how the Lord brought me to faith in Christ. It's similar to how the Lord worked many, in many of your hearts as well. But, I, you know, I grew up thinking that um, all I had to do was say the sinner's prayer and ask Jesus into my heart and tell him that I believed in him and, you know, to I believe in you, Jesus, and I don't want to go to hell, and I'm going to try to be a good person. And, and I thought that, that that was the path of salvation. But I was deceived. I was greatly deceived. It wasn't until my early 20s that the Lord brought the gospel to bear upon my, upon my heart. But I remember what happened was that God brought the law to bear on my heart. And I felt this deep weight in my soul. This, this burden, this, this terror... I saw my horrible wickedness. I saw uh, the, the, the judgment that, that I deserved and the anger of God toward sin. And, and, and I saw, I remember even uh, reading John chapter 6 and John says, Jesus says there, no man is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I realized I can't just pray a prayer. I can't just go to Jesus and find forgiveness. He has to draw me. He has to grant me permission for that. It's not in my power. Because God is sovereign and I am not. What do you do when you're at that point? I just, I cried out for mercy. Lord, have mercy. And he answered. This is the same cry as the publican, if you remember that parable, that story from Luke 18. Remember, there's, there's the Pharisee who goes to the temple and prays and thank you, Lord, I'm not like these other people. Look at all of what I've done. And then there's this publican, this tax collector. And he comes up and he, he, wouldn't, he stood far off. So he was, he was you know, um, fearful of even approaching close to the temple in the presence of God. And he wouldn't even lift his eyes toward heaven. He looked down as he prayed. And he beat his breast with shame, with with hatred of self in a sense. And said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man walked away justified. It's the same as the, the prodigal son. He comes to the end of himself, and he spends everything that he has, and then he tries to work by feeding pigs, and that's not enough either. He's out of resources. He's out of help. He's out of strength. He comes to the end of himself, we read. He could do nothing. He had nothing. And so... He came, he returned to his father, confessing his sin and says, I'm no longer worthy to be received as your son. And he was received and he was forgiven and he was rejoiced over. It's the cry as well of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter three. Remember, he recounts all his credentials. Circumcised the eight day, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of the Pharisees, blameless according to the law. I surpassed all of my superiors in my religious devotion, but I count everything as a loss. It's all dung. It's rubbish. It's worthless. It helps nothing. Counted it as a law so that I may gain a Christ and be clothed with a righteousness not of my own that comes through the law, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. So Jesus begins here because the first step on the road to Christianity, to being a Christian, is seeing that our own goodness is not good enough. And that because we are spiritually bankrupt, we are beggars. We are entirely dependent upon God to pour out grace and strength and salvation. Brethren, that's the the question before you today. That's the question before some of you. If you have not yet been baptized upon profession of faith if you have not bowed the knee to Christ in humble repentance and faith the question before you is has the law done its work and shown you that you can't save yourself does the spirit and posture of your heart illustrate that you stand before God as a beggar Have you seen the greatness of God? Have you seen the holiness of the law? Have you seen the the strength of of sin? Your sinful heart and Satan and, and the world around you. Has it broken you? Has it reduced you to nothing in and of yourselves? That's part of what Jesus calls you to see this morning. Poverty of spirit as the gateway to salvation is the first step to being reconciled with God. Now we spent most of our time on this first point because we had to define what it meant to be poor in spirit. Uh, But briefly, I want to draw your attention to two other aspects today as well. Secondly, just as we are beggars in regards to our salvation, we need to see that we are beggars regarding our sanctification as well. So salvation is going to point more toward our conversion. Sanctification is going to refer more to the Christian life. And in that respect, we are beggars As well. I hope this point is obvious. You know, there's more to being poor in spirit than just knowing that you can't save yourself in salvation. Remember, as I'm arguing here, being poor in spirit is key if you're to cultivate any of the virtues of these Beatitudes. The posture of being poor in spirit is what permeates them all. A helpful way of putting it might be that we never outgrow. The first beatitude. And if we ever think or act as if we've outgrown it, we've deceived ourselves. Think back to our reading of the law earlier from the book of Revelation and the church in Laodicea. If you remember what Jesus writes to them, you know, he says, You're lukewarm, you're useless, essentially. Uh, You make me sick. In so many terms. Nauseous. I just want to throw you up in that sense. Why? Because you think you're rich and you're prosperous and you don't need anything. And you don't even see that you're wretched. That you're deserving of pity. Pitiable that you're poor, that you're blind, that you're naked. Jesus puts His finger on how they thought they had everything they needed in life and in their spiritual life. And they lived as though they did not depend upon and have a continual need for the Lord Jesus Christ. They had not just pushed Jesus out of the church, not intentionally, They simply pushed him out by forgetting and neglecting him. So the rebuke that Jesus gives centers on their self-reliance and their self-satisfaction on the fact that they had no need. They had, in many respects, outgrown this first beatitude. They certainly wouldn't deny that it's necessary to be poor in spirit to become a Christian, But they lived as though, okay, that's good. Now I can progress on to bigger and better and greater things. And that's why the Lord rebukes them. Hey, remember, brethren, the the beautiful illustration that Jesus gives in John 15. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You see, the poor in spirit live in that reality. They know apart from Christ, they can do nothing. They know that unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. They know that if we are to grow and progress and mature in the Christian life, we are beggars at the gates of heaven. Part of the reason I emphasize this, brothers, is because of how prevalent um, self-focused and self-sufficient and self-confident Christianity is in our day. And so many preach a gospel that you're saved by faith, you're saved by faith, you're saved by faith. But if you really want to be blessed, if you really want to grow in the Christian life, if you really want to flourish, if you really want to enjoy the finer things, well, it really depends upon you. Your work, your spiritual disciplines. Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying every day? Are you beating the body in order to perfectly or as much as possible obey the Word of God? Your effort, your strength. And the focus remains on you. And the focus remains on the resources that you're called to procure. A.W. Tozer. In 1966, was talking about how this new, newfound, modern message of the cross was all around him. And it's kind of along these lines. Listen to what he says. He's talking about this new message of the gospel, the new cross. He says, the new cross does not slay the sinner. It just redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living, and it saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself to Christ, for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of Christian fellowship. The Christian message is slanted in the direction of the current vogue, in order to make it acceptable to the public. Brethren, just as we considered last week, we must see that the gospel, we must see that the Beatitudes are entirely and emphatically the opposite of what the world and the natural inclinations of our flesh value. Whether we're talking about salvation, whether we're talking about sanctification, the world loves self-reliance and self-confidence and self-expression. We're told to believe in ourselves. We're told to express ourselves. We're told to trust ourselves. We're told to to listen to ourselves. And in, in these churches where sanctification is all upon you, everything is slanted and pressed upon you as your duty. You must do this. This is all in your power. And if you're not, well, you're not going to live the blessed life. We need to listen, though, to what C.H. Spurgeon said here. He said, "Above all other evils, we have the most cause to dread our own fullness." Think about that. Think about all the evils in this world. You worry about the encroach of sexual morality and transgenderism and homosexuality? Do you worry about the prevalence of pornography? Do you worry about crooked politicians and cultural peer pressure and materialism? Do you worry about racism and injustice? Do you worry about how easy it is to slander with the tongue or to think evil thoughts of people? Do you worry about all these things? Of all evils, we have the most cause to dread our own fullness. Have you ever thought that my self-sufficiency is the greatest, greatest temptation, greater than anything else in this world? Spurgeon goes on and says, our imaginary goodness and strength is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. What is the sin that you're struggling with right now? We all have them. Have you ever thought that your imaginary Goodness and strength is more difficult to conquer than the sin that you're struggling with? I think Spurgeon's right. The reality is, the more spiritually mature that we become, the more profound will be our own sense of utter poverty. Think about when the power of Christ is made perfect in you. When is that? 2 Corinthians 12:9. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Poverty of spirit in the Christian life is the means by which the riches and the power of God are most effective in us. To be filled with Christ is to be emptied of self. That's true in salvation. It's true in sanctification. And brethren, I press this upon you and ask you, have you learned this in the Christian life? Prayer is one means by which is evident that we are poverty, living in poverty of spirit. Devotion to God's word is another evidence that we are living with this poor in spirit. We can't trust our own wisdom. We can't trust our own inclination. Devotion to the church and to worship is also evidence of being poor in spirit because we are laying at the gates of heaven, as it were, and begging God where he's promised to be found in his word, in his church, in the Lord's Supper, we are begging him to give us grace and strength and help and to keep us from stumbling and keep us from falling away. So Jesus does blesses those who know they are insufficient of them in and of themselves, but he also calls us to pursue this virtue, this poverty of spirit that leads to our growth and maturity in the gospel. Well, third and finally, We've seen how we are beggars in regards to salvation. We've seen how we are beggars in regards to sanctification. Third and finally, it's only beggars who enjoy the happy, blessed life in God's kingdom. It's only beggars who enjoy the happy and blessed life in God's kingdom. Remember the thrust of Christ's words here. Is not to lay upon us this poverty of spirit as if it's a law, as if it's to crush us, as if it's something we can do in and of ourselves. But it's to bless those who've already been broken down by the law. His promise is, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Who is it then that possesses the kingdom of heaven? Who is it then? It inherits the eternal kingdom, the kingdom of God's presence, the kingdom of God's protection and rule and reign. It's given to the poor, not to the rich. It's given to the weak, not the mighty. It's given to the little children who are humble enough to receive it, not to the proud who think they deserve it or think that they can obtain it on their own. This again hits at what we talked about last week. The most fundamental difference between a believer and a non-believer is that a non-believer always lives for this world. And right now. While the Christian decidedly has given up this world and lives for the age to come. And that's what we see here as well. The proud and the self-sufficient and the self-righteous seek an earthly kingdom. The kingdom that is now. The kingdom that they can see. The kingdom that, that, that is visible. That is earthly. But those who know what we don't deserve. Those who know what we cannot earn. Those who realize there's something I cannot obtain on my own. We seek the kingdom that is above The kingdom that is freely given to us and enjoyed by grace. And the beauty of this is that while, yes, we await the final inheritance and enjoyment of that kingdom to the age to come, Christ's words are clear. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The blessings of the kingdom are given right now. As we are emptied of ourselves, as we are stripped of our own righteousness and broken of our own strength through faith, Jesus Christ becomes our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And what that means is that while we are united, when we are united to Christ by faith, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places right now. We are subjects of and even rulers in Christ's kingdom right now. We are overcomers, conquering sin, Satan, and the world right now. We are a chosen priesthood, uh, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation right now. We are citizens of heaven, of the age to come right now. And, and to be citizens of God's heavenly kingdom right now means that we have His favor right now. We have His protection and rule right now. We have the nourishment of His fellowship and communion right now. We have the strength of His power right now. We are blessed and enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places right now. And this is where true happiness lies. Not if your heart is set on things of the world. You'll never find happiness in these things. But if your heart is set upon Christ and love for God, this is where happiness is found in being a citizen of His kingdom. You know, the world tells you, your sinful desires tell you, true happiness is found when I am in charge. I live life on my own terms, I define for myself. Who I am. I am my own God. I am in charge. I stand up for my rights. I pull myself up by my own strength. I don't need any handouts. I can do it on my own. I can rule my own destiny. And that's where happiness and fulfillment is found. But if you hear Christ's voice here, he's saying true happiness is not found going deeper into yourself. True happiness is found in emptying yourself in order to be filled by Christ. True happiness is found in humble submission to God. It's only then are we truly free. It's only then are we truly happy, truly blessed. It's only then that we can shout with great joy and great confidence My sufficiency is Christ. Don't believe the lies of this world. Listen, listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ right here. That the way up is the way down. That to gain everything is to lose means to lose everything. That the broken heart is a healed heart. That there is great freedom and joy and happiness found in giving up. All of your rights and all of your sufficiency in order to be found in him. So what will it be for you? What will it be for you? Are you going to fight and claw and you're going to work your way for an earthly temporal kingdom that will pass away? Or are you content to be a beggar? Poor And lowly and destitute of earthly strength and resources and power. And yet a citizen of a glorious eternal kingdom that will shortly be revealed. That's the question put before you today. It's only beggars who enjoy the happy, blessed life in God's heavenly kingdom. Well, brethren, as we conclude this morning. I just want to remind you that even as we think about this poverty of spirit, remember the words of Scripture. We echo them in the hymn when we often sing. That God calls us to come to Him and buy without money and without price. That the fitness for buying from the Lord is not doing something that makes us poor in spirit. The only fitness that he requires is that we feel our need for him. Do you feel your need for him? Do you feel your need for Christ this morning? The only fitness is feeling feeling our need for him because Christ himself is our sufficiency. He is the one who is perfectly and perpetually poor in spirit. Just remember how he submitted to the Father's will. How he often deferred to the Father's word. How how often he prayed and relied upon the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. He was poor in spirit perfectly all the way to the cross where he bore our sins. Where he earned these blessings and the inheritance of this kingdom. So that he might now freely give it to us who feel, feel our need and come to him and receive him by faith. Do you feel your need of Christ this morning? Are you willing to sell everything you own to obtain the pearl of great price? Can you sing and say with the hymn writer? Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. I'm naked and I come to thee for dress. I'm helpless and I look to thee for grace. Foul, filthy, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the posture of heart, of being poor in spirit. And conversion and the Christian life, that is where true blessedness is, is found. And that is a promise and assurance to you this morning that you may lose everything, but you will by no means lose your reward. May God give us the faith and the grace to believe and receive these words. For our salvation today. Amen. Would you pray with me again?